0: A brief history of office macros, a log for shell style bug, two open SSL crypto bugs, and more on the Naked Security Podcast. All right, welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth, and he is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do? I'm well, Doug. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed last week. Thank you, I did. It was, uh, it was warm, but nice, but not as warm as it is where you are.
1: No, we're having what in the UK counts as a heat wave, and there's not a breath of wind today, so it is pretty sweltery.
0: Perhaps you will make history with the hottest recorded temperature, but I will give you this bit of tech history while you wait. This week in 2001, the Code Red Worm started making its way through the internet. It attacked computers running Microsoft's IIS web server and spread by leveraging a buffer overflow. And my, how times have, well, haven't changed much a couple decades later.
1: Yes, and when Code Red happened, everyone said, oh, golly. One of the ways it spreads is just like what the internet worm did, the Morris worm did, way back in 1988. Have we learned nothing? And it turns out that was a rhetorical question, Doug.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember dealing with this worm?
1: It's not one of the ones that one would ever forget because of the speed and suddenness of it all and the fact that it's just this network packet that just showed up and then went revving off elsewhere. So I think the huge deal, particularly given the timing of it at the beginning of the 21st century, was that although fortunately it didn't have any badness directly programmed into it, like, hey, download ransomware and scramble your computer, it generated so much network traffic that was outbound for you attacking the next guy and inbound for everyone else that with lots and lots of countries having very, very strict internet usage caps in those days, it raised the issue of who's going to pay? Yeah, I didn't ask for this traffic. I didn't ask to have somebody who hadn't secured their IIS server pound me. I couldn't actually stop this. It reached my router because, well, it got through the ISP. So there was this whole thing of who takes responsibility, who pays for it. I was in South Australia at the time, and my ISP actually came out and said, we're basically going to unmeter everything, loosely speaking, for a bit while we get to the bottom of this. So fortunately, it kind of ended without too many tears. But it is a great indicator that sometimes the side effects of malware, even if it was intended as a prank right at the start, can be much worse than dangerous things that are programmed into the malware itself.
0: I I love listening to these stories of you living through these awful times, even though they were awful, because it's such good context for stuff that's going on now, because it hasn't changed all that much.
1: Fortunately, Doug, we did have good mobile phone coverage in those days. So at least you knew that you could phone home and say, ah, I might be a bit late. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to have lived through it, but I would not have said that at the time. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, speaking of coming home late, there's an OpenSSL, two one-liner crypto bugs that some uh, headlines are referring to as worse than Heartbleed.
1: These were fascinating bugs. They were basically what I call one-liners. In other words, with one line of code changed or added, the bug could be fixed. That, and one of them was specific to the special numeric calculations for public key cryptography. It was, um, hmm. That one was CV-2022-2274, memory overflow in RSA modular exponentiation. I won't go into what modular exponentiation is, but it's basically multiplying a number by itself over and over and over again and then doing divisions as you go along. And it turns out that you can greatly accelerate that iterative calculation if you have a, a CPU, a chip in your computer that supports what's called vector arithmetic, which is where you do the same calculation at the same time on multiple lots of data. It's kind of like you get four instructions for the price of one. Hmm. So Intel, some of their chips, have a, a super special, extra powerful version of that called AVX512. And so OpenSSL goes, well, if you've got that chip, I'll use this super fast extra way of accelerating everything. And in the middle of it, the programmer was given a number of bits that were supposed to be copied from A to B in memory. But in fact, because it's dealing with this special chip that works with bigger integers, the programmer didn't copy N bits. They copied N unsigned long integers, meaning that this was a memory buffer overflow of potentially spectacular proportions. Mm -hmm. You know, you could be copying 64 times as much data as there was space for, (laughs) And so one line fixed it. Take the number of bits and divide it down to convert it into the number of integers you need to copy instead of the number of bits. Literally a one line fix few.
0: Okay, what about the other one?
1: Well, the other one that is uh, the delightfully named CVE 2022 2097 data leakage in AES OCB encryption. This is a special type of what's called authenticated encryption mode. Again, I won't go into that, but it's a way of doing AES encryption where you take a number of 16-byte of, uh, chunks and you scramble those chunks one by one. And in this particular variant of AES encryption, the programmer was supposed to go through the blocks from 1 to N, encrypting them. Start at block 1, 2, 3, dot, 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 dot up to and including n, thereby scrambling every block in the input. And unfortunately, the code went from one to a value less than n, not less than or equal to n. Hmm. So the last block that was supposed to be encrypted never got encrypted. And so depending on how you're using the algorithm, it could actually mean that the encrypted data that you got back and maybe saved to disk was all perfectly encrypted except the last 16 bytes, would be the original plain text. So actually plain text would leak out every time you used the algorithm, <laughs> which is not, good. not the idea of an encryption algorithm. No. <laughs> it's supposed to encrypt everything or nothing, not arbitrary parts of it. So that too was fixed, again, by a single line change. A test for less than was changed for, to a test for less than or equal to. Oh. A one byte change in the final compiled code.
0: Wow. Okay, so you say the modular exponentiation bug is more severe, but you should just update on both, right? Yes,
1: can. the fixes are there and they work and they should be uncontroversial. That's the nice thing about a one-liner fix. It's not like you're changing an algorithm or changing the API. So I think it's a very uncontroversial update to apply. And there are two updates for the two supported versions of OpenSSL. gets updated to 3.0.5. That has both the fixes in because both the bugs are in that code. And OpenSSL 1.1.1 goes from version P for PAPA to Q for Quebec. And that doesn't have the modular exponentiation bug. It only has the other one. But one bug is bad enough. So that's my advice. Patch early, patch often as always.
0: Okay, you can read about that on nakedsecurity.suffos.com, and we move from something called worse than Heartbleed, but it doesn't sound like it's actually worse than Heartbleed, to...
1: No, I think that makes a good
0: headline, though. (laughs) Yeah, of course. To a Log4Shell-style bug in Apache.
1: Yes, that makes a good headline as well. There you go. Oh, it could be like Log4Shell. And I have to be honest, I did use the word Log4Shell in the Naked Security headline but I just described it as a log4shell-style bug because it is. And to me, that's the most important part here for any programmers now coming onto the scene. Try not to make this mistake, which is the same sort of blunder that was made in the log4shell bug and the same sort of blunder that we spoke about recently in Microsoft Folina. And yes, Doug, it involves dollar signs and brackets. If you Uh remember log4shell, if I said log this word, Doug, then it would log, Doug, exactly as I sent it. But as I said, log this word, dollar squiggly bracket, special weird command, then I was actually telling the other end, no, 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 don't log what I sent you. Do some funky calculations based on what I sent you, even though you can't trust it, and then take the result of that and log that instead. Sounds dangerous. It is dangerous. Follina, it was dollar round bracket, command round bracket, where instead of that text being used literally and exactly to identify a file name, what happened is that the windows would go, oh, no, hang on, what you should do is don't use that as the file name. Run what's in the brackets as a PowerShell command and use that as the file name. Mm -hmm. And this was very, very much the same. And this was because it's Java, like log for shell, dollar squiggly brackets, braces. That's how it worked. Now, the code that the bug was in is called Apache Commons Configuration. It's a utility library, free utility library, part of the Apache Commons set of subprojects, which is just a load of super useful packages and stuff. And this one lets you handle configuration files, and it'll handle XML files, and it'll handle any files and a whole load of other stuff. Mm-hmm. And that dangerous stuff could be run a command and take the output of the command, which obviously means potential remote code injection, uh, it could be, do a DNS lookup with this computer name and see what comes back. That's a very, very simple low key way of exfiltrating data in the middle of a, of a server name lookup request. And the last one you could, you could say, go to this URL and whatever comes back, use that. You've supplied the data, but you actually get to instruct the other end, hey, run a command, do a DNS lookup or visit my website. So even though you can't send it code back to run in the case of the website, it means you've made the request, you could have leaked all sorts of stuff to the crooks. And clearly, at least by default, that's a terribly bad idea. And in the last few versions of this Apache Commons configuration, and by a few versions, I mean over the last few years, this was added as a air quotes feature. But of course, it turns out to be more of a liability. So in the latest version, that behavior has been understandably reversed.
0: Okay, that's been sitting there since 2018, but has been patched in version 2.8.0, which you should update to if you can. And we've got some instructions on the site, on Naked Security in the article about how to check if you're vulnerable. So people can go there to check that out.
1: And of course, the advice to programmers is if you are writing code that can accept Potentially untrusted data, and as any kind of dollar round bracket or dollar squiggly bracket, hey, run this command that someone else decided upon, shenanigans. Check thine inputs and outputs. <laughs> Not that we've ever said that before. Don't. Uh-huh. don't go for convenience over security if you can possibly help it. Great. All right.
0: Check that out. That article is on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. We come to my favorite article of the week because it offers a brief history of Office macros and then a little back and forth wherein everyone seemingly was saying, come on, Microsoft, do this. And then Microsoft did the thing. And then everyone's like, why'd you do that?
1: (laughs) Yes, Uh, you may have oversimplified slightly or at least you've (laughs) left out the key thing that Uh although it took 20 years for (laughs) them to get around to put this feature in and only 20 weeks to go, oh golly, we're taking it out. I don't think, Everybody told them to remove it. I just mm. think that there was an unfortunate side effect that hit not a majority, but a sufficiently vocal small minority yeah. that Microsoft kind of had to go, okay, we're backing this off for a bit, but watch this space. We'll be back. We, we meant to put this feature in and we now intend to. It took us 20 years to think about it. We won't be diverted at this stage. And that feature is just saying that if you receive an office file of certain types, uh, in particular, Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, amongst others, if you receive such a file that contains macros, i.e. executable code, Visual Basic for Applications code, and the file came off the internet, then the macros just won't work. Initially, in the early days, hey, they just work whenever. And that was clearly a disaster. And then Microsoft tightened things up a bit, and they said, well, if it came off the internet, we'll pop up a warning and you'll have to go, yes, I really want to do this. And we'll have a non-default feature that well-informed sysadmins can go, no, 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 I don't want to ask. I want to tell users, sorry, you can't do it. And finally, Microsoft decided, you know what? It seems that when you have this non-default feature turned on, it greatly reduces the risk that you'll get fished using documents with macros in, we're going to make it the default. And that was the change they announced, and I think we spoke about it on the podcast, what was it, back in February or March 2022, and they implemented it. And it turned out that, yeah, like you say, Doug, you can please some of the people, some of the time, <laughs> but not all of the people, all of the time. And in this case, for better or for worse, I guess the squeaky wheel got the oil. What some people are doing is saying, no, 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 this is a step too far. How dare you protect me from myself? <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. But like I said, Microsoft is apparently saying, look, this this feature is coming back. Myself, I wish they could have done this 20 years ago.
0: Given that this is, again, not on by default, you can take steps to lock this down yourself.
1: If you have uh, a network where you can use group policy, a Windows network where you can use group policy, for example, then... As an administrator, you can set this function on to say, look, as a company, we just don't want macros off the internet. We're not going to even offer you a button that you can say, yeah, why not? Why not let the macros run? If you're a smaller business, you know, with just with a a few people working together and you're working with cloud-based services, including Microsoft Cloud Services, it may not be quite so easy. You can apply group policy protections by editing the registry on your own computer. It's not that hard. But there isn't just a magic button you can easily press. So you can do it if you want. But if you're a small business, I would just suggest that you read about this, learn what the change is meant to do for you, and see if you can accommodate it for when it comes back. Because all the evidence suggests that this does make a useful impact on document-based phishing, where the crooks use documents to sneak dodgy code into the company and then trick you into running it by going yo oh, yes you need to click this to decrypt the document or to uncopy protected or to reveal the hidden content and lo and behold you press the button you authorize something that you shouldn't have bad stuff happens and next thing you know your computer's being invaded so it seems that as a protective vehicle it does work it's just ironic that what i would almost ready to describe as too little too late <laughs> ended up for some people being too much too soon but we'll get there in the end i think just so hang in there if you don't yet quite know what to do
0: all right we will keep an eye on that that is on nakedsecurity.sophos.com and last but certainly not least this is a story about uh, paying ransomware crooks so i have a business i get hit with ransomware I've got regulators coming after me saying, you got hit by a ransom, where you're in in big trouble for not protecting people's data. And I say, but I paid the ransom. That's got to be worth something, right?
1: Yes, I must admit, I was quite surprised that this became the deal that it was. But I thought it was important to remind people about that. Now, it's a UK-specific story as it stands, because it's an open letter that came from the UK Information Commissioner's Office backed by the National Cyber Security Centre, which is part of the secret intelligence service in the UK. But it's an open letter to attorneys, to lawyers around the UK. And I suspect that there will be many other countries where lawyers, perhaps understandably, are kind of thinking along these lines of saying to people, look, if you're stuck with paying the ransom to get the data back, and it's going to get the business going again, it's not illegal And given that that's the negotiation that crooks want to do so that they don't leak the data, we can't for the life of us see why that would make the regulator more cross than if you just showed the middle finger to the crooks and they did leak the data and bad things happened. Mm -hmm. Thus, this open letter. Like I said, specific to the UK, but there may be other countries where people are thinking along these lines. And as the Information Commissioner's Office very bluntly put it, It has been suggested to us that a belief persists that payment of a ransom may protect the stolen data and or result in a lower penalty by the regulator should it undertake an investigation. (laughs) Here's the kicker. We would like to be clear that this is not the case. (laughs) For the avoidance of doubt, the Information Commissioner's Office does not consider the payment of monies to criminals who have attacked a system As mitigating the risk to individuals. (laughs) And this will not reduce any penalties incurred. Paying the crooks for getting you out of the hole that the crooks dug you into. (laughs) It's not a security precaution. (laughs) Who knew, Doug?
0: (laughs) Yeah, seriously. And you do say in the article, so I thought this was interesting. You are reasonable about this. You say, if it's likely to be the only hope of saving your business and keeping your staff and their jobs, it seems fair to consider paying up as a sort of necessary evil.
1: The regulator in the UK is saying it's not automatically unlawful to pay ransomware demands in the UK. Like there's no actual law that says if you do it, you're a criminal yourself. Although they say, we insist as far as we can that you don't, but we can't stop you. We recognize there may be reasons. However, you do need to remember, particularly in the current era, that you may still get into trouble because of what they call the relevant sanctions regulations, particularly those related to Russia. Mm-hmm. So although it's not blanket unlawful to pay ransoms in general, in the UK, I don't know whether any countries have that rule yet. There may be cases where you are not supposed to pay or not allowed to pay for other reasons, because of where the money's going. And of course if you do pay, then you have little choice but to risk being in trouble for that. So they are warning you that although you may want to pay with the deepest dread in your heart, do your very best to avoid doing so. And of course, all those other reasons that we spoke about when we talked about the this year's Sophos Ransomware Survey. Basically, paying up, it should only ever be a last resort. What What were the stats in our latest survey? A third of the people only got half. They don't get to choose which half it is, by the way. <laughs> That's the important thing to remember. But even more importantly, at least some of the people who paid up got nothing at all. And very few of people who did pay actually got everything. Mm-hmm. So the idea that, oh, well, paying, obviously, it'll at least get my business running again. And you know the regulator might go, well, at least you tried to make the best of a bad job. The first part doesn't work that way. You might get absolutely nothing at all after you've paid the money. Colonial Pipeline spent, what, 4.4 million, was it? And what did they get? A decryptor that was so slow they couldn't even use it. Mm -hmm. They they just went for their backups anyway, which they could have done and kept 4.4 million in their pocket. And this fact that the regulator is not going to thank you for paying the money and say, gosh, what a thoughtful person you were. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The least they're going to do is say, irrelevant. You didn't look after the data properly. You didn't mitigate the risk as you should. Let's talk about what we're going to do to punish you and make sure you don't do it
0: again. All right. Very good. You can read more about that on the site, nakedsecurity.suffos.com. And as the sun slowly begins to set on our show for this week, it's time to hear from one of our readers. On the Office Macros article, Keith writes, if companies rely on receiving macro-embedded documents from the internet and accept the risk They should be the ones that enable it by group policy, protect the many, and force them to allow security exceptions. I think there's a sentiment that's probably shared by others as well.
1: Yes. My first thought when I saw that comment, well, apart from hitting the approve button immediately was, (laughs) yeah, that's how it should be, right? Shouldn't even need to say it. In the same way that Who would have thought you need to send a letter to lawyers saying, saying, hey, paying the ransom isn't a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. But I guess, you know, even though it might be the few or it might be a minority of people, my gut feeling is that what's happened with Microsoft is they have found that small businesses, including those who are actually keen to adopt Microsoft's own cloud solutions, are finding that this is actually harder to handle than they would ever have thought So maybe for a while, the bigger companies just have to go, okay, we'll use group policy. We know how to do that. We'll just turn this on and leave it on. If you do have it on already, by the way, this protection, then this change, I don't think it would have made any difference when it was turned on because it would already have been on and now it's off by default. It won't be off on your network. The sentiment is absolutely correct. I think, you know, if there are people who go, oh, you can't do that. I'm not going to buy lights for my bicycle. That's my business, not yours. Like if you run me over and squash me flat, that's my problem. And forgetting about the fact that there are all these knock-on effects to the rest of the community uh, when they do things that are insecure. So I agree. Ideally, when we finally decided this is a security feature that's working out so well, we're going to turn it on for everybody. I absolutely agree that should be non-contentious. But like we said earlier in the podcast, it looks as though Microsoft is, I think they're hoping for just a few weeks of rethinking this. So. As we know, the problem with thinking about software things for a few weeks is where does few end and many start? Mm -hmm. Is that six weeks or is 56 weeks a few? (laughs) When lockdown started, did you think it was going to be 104 weeks, two years? Or did you think, ah, probably three, maybe eight. So I think in this case, let's hope that we finish up in a situation where it's all's well, ends well and that the default does become more secure for everybody except for those who insist on turning the feature off.
0: All right, very good. Thank you for the comment, Keith. And if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles or hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth reminding you, until next time to stay Shit's secure. Secure.